turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 18 to 26 today. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been a place in your life when everything seemed to be going well, perhaps you got a promotion, your relationship's going well, you're in good health, when suddenly without notice, the bottom drops out and it seems like everything just goes to pot? I mean, you might be sitting there thinking, ah, Nate, that was all of last year. That was 2020. Literally everything went wrong. Anything that could go wrong went wrong in 2020. I mean, we had a pandemic. We had one of the craziest election cycles of the year. We had riots. We had, I mean, it was literally like end times level stuff that was going on last year. But maybe more on a personal level. Maybe something in your personal life that went wrong. And 2020 might have brought that. Perhaps the loss of a loved one. To COVID-19 or, or another disease, another virus. Perhaps a tragedy struck your family. Maybe you were in a car accident. Maybe you lost your job. Perhaps you went through a divorce. Maybe you've just been experiencing an incredible amount of depression and anxiety. You know, they say that right now the number one skyrocketing health issue today is depression and anxiety. People who at one point never experienced sadness have all of a sudden begun to experience this apathy and this feeling like something's just wrong and they don't know how to deal with that. They don't know where to go with that. Have you ever felt like God has failed you or let you down, that he didn't do things the way that you thought he should? Have you ever had something happen in your life that causes you to say, where is God? We hear about him, we go to church, we sing songs to him, but where is he? Why isn't he showing up in this situation? Why isn't he helping me with my issues? Has it ever seemed like God is intentionally dragging his feet or not really paying attention to you and to your needs? Have you ever worried about the way that God does or doesn't do certain things, causing you to momentarily entertain doubt? Well, first of all, I want to let you know that that's okay. You're not alone if you feel that way. As a matter of fact, all throughout Scripture, some great men and women of the Bible had momentary lapses in their faith. They had moments of doubt, wondering if God really was who he said he was. Let me ask you, have you ever asked the question, does God really care about me? Have you ever asked that? It's a natural question to ask, and it doesn't make you a, a sinful person if you've asked that question, because there's moments in life when pain hits, when tragedy strikes, when depression rises, that we begin to ask those questions. Does God really care about me? He's a busy guy. There's a lot going on. Does he really care about my little problems? You know, again, I love this weekend, and I love what we get to do by standing for the one, because I believe that this perfectly represents the heart of Jesus Christ. He's the God who would leave the 99 and go after the one. He would take time to reach out to the hurting, take time to reach out to the lost and to the broken. And we read this Throughout the gospel, we see the masses while Jesus sees the individuals. We think of Jesus on a hilltop in Galilee, preaching to the multitudes with an eloquent voice, spinning these incredible sermons. We think about the Sermon on the Mount, and we like to picture Jesus ministering to these crowds. And while he did preach some incredible sermons to the masses, much of his greatest ministry wasn't done in front of thousands, but it was done one-on-one. -on -one. To the individual. And I want to stop there for a second because I think sometimes we can miss the opportunities that God has for us. 
We can feel like perhaps God has called us to minister to the thousands. We can feel like God has called us to the mission field or perhaps God has a calling upon your life to be on the platform or to speak to large groups of people. But we can miss the opportunities of the people that God has put directly in front of us. We can be sitting there praying, Lord, please just give me a platform, give me people to minister to, give me just voices that that I can speak to and speak into and make a difference in, and then meanwhile, little Johnny comes in the room wanting breakfast. Shut up, Johnny, mom's having her quiet time. And we're missing the opportunities, the people that God has put within our lives. Jesus' life was marked by ministry to people, to individuals needing something from him. Jesus cares about the individual just as much as he cares about the masses. Yes, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the entire world, but the essence of the gospel is that if you were the only person on this earth, he would have died just for you. Just for you. One of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that our God cares for us whether we care for him or not. Not only does he care for us, Jesus knows us intricately. He knows every hair on our head. He knit us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. See, the gospel is a deeply personal message. And the audience of the gospel is you as an individual. From the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, his intention, his desire was to interact and live with them in a very personal way as two friends face to face. We're told in Genesis that God would often walk through the garden just like we would walk through Walmart on a Monday night. Like he's just walking through the garden, hanging out with Adam and Eve. It was deeply personal. It was intimate. It was a relationship. And Adam and Eve ruined that relationship and that intimacy. They broke fellowship with their sin. But God's desire to live in personal fellowship with mankind persisted. And so he came to die for you so that his original plan of personal intimacy could be restored. You also need to know that God hurts with you. We're told that in all their suffering, he also suffered. I mean, that could be the banner and the definition for empathy, right? In all their suffering, he also suffered. He hurts with you. He cares for you, all of you, your worry, your stress, your anxiety, your fear, your doubt, your fatigue, your pain. He cares for you. So does God really care? Well, the answer is yes. He sees, he knows, and he cares. Let's see that in our text this morning as we read Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 to 26. And we ask that question, does God really care? Look at verse 18 with me and we'll read down to 26. Well, he spoke these things to them. Behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I will be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. 
And when Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, and he said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. And when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the little girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. Let's stop there. As we ask this question, does God really care? We're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see, number one, he takes time for the broken. Number two, he brings hope to the hopeless. And number three, he breathes life into the lifeless. Now, we're given in this story eight verses, eight verses to unpack a really, really incredible story, eight verses to unpack two huge miracles. First, we have this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years that comes and literally doesn't even touch him, just touches his clothes, and she's healed. And then we have a 12-year-old girl who dies, and a father comes to Jesus asking for healing, and he literally raises a girl to life. Two incredible stories and only eight verses to unpack all of this. Two dramatic miracles. But, and more importantly, I believe, this is also the story of Jesus dealing with a heartbroken person. Jesus dealing with a heartbroken father, Jairus. You know, we read this story and we tend to focus on the big miracles. I don't know if you're like me, but when I was a kid, I'd read this story and i focus on the fact that Jesus raised the dead, because that's pretty huge, right? And, and this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. But I think the more important thing here, and I think the beautiful thing here, is that Jesus takes time for broken-hearted people. I want you to think about Jairus in this situation, a 12-year-old girl. Those of you who have daughters, those of you who have sons, you have kids, you know that your kids are the pride and joy of your life. And you have to imagine for Jairus, this 12-year-old little girl, this beautiful little girl, the spirit she had, the joy she had, playing, eating dinner with her family, she was the pride and joy of Jairus' life. She meant everything to Jairus. He was a ruler in the synagogue. He had money. He had influence. He had wealth. I bet he would have given all of it away if he could have saved his daughter. He probably went to every doctor. He tried everything he could. He tried every remedy, and yet none of it worked. We open up in the story, and it tells us, well, he spoke these things to them. A ruler came and worshiped him. Mark's gospel adds a bit more to the story. Mark's gospel for this story, instead of eight verses, gives us a little over 20 verses to address this story. And Mark's gospel says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him. So let's set the stage of this story. Jesus is in the Galilee region where he did most of his ministry, and he gets on a boat and he crosses to the other side. When he gets to the other side, a large crowd, a large gathering, a large multitude greets him there. Now, it doesn't tell us how many, but let's just pretend for the sake of the story that it's this room. A large group, thousands of people come to gather and hear what Jesus is going to say. They've heard about his stories. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard the things that he's said, and they want to hear. So they gather to Jesus. He gets off the boat, and he starts delivering a sermon. He starts delivering a message to the masses. Now, in the middle of his sermon to thousands of people, we're told that Jairus, this hurting father, interrupts him mid-message with a request, interrupted by a man with a broken heart. 
Now, being the ruler of the synagogue, we don't really know if Jairus was a believer at this point. More likely, he was probably someone who had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the things that he was saying. He had heard rumors of miracles that he had performed. And he figured, this was my last ditch effort. Maybe this Jesus guy, maybe the stories are true. Maybe he actually can heal the sick. Maybe he actually can restore sight to the blind. Maybe he really can cause the, 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 the people to rise up and walk who have never walked in their entire lives. And he starts thinking about these stories, and it's kind of like a last Hail Mary pass. Like, maybe, just maybe, this will work. And anyone who's had a sick relative, you know that feeling where you've tried everything. You've tried everything the doctors have said. You've tried every medication. You've tried every treatment. Nothing has worked. But you hear about some experimental treatment that sounds too good to be true. And you think, maybe, just maybe, that will be the thing that will fix my loved one. And like Jairus, you felt that feeling of a little bit of hope. Perhaps this will be the solution. This will be the answer. Jairus knew his daughter was dying, and he was in a race against time. He was brokenhearted. He was hurting. He had tried everything possible with the doctors, but her case was hopeless. And so he comes to Jesus. He interrupts Jesus. And what does Jesus do? What's his response? Well, imagine if you were in the audience, and let's just say right now in this message, some person ran through the doors making a big commotion, making a lot of noise, talking about a need that they had. What would your response be? You'd look around like, man, what is that person doing? That's so rude. They're interrupting a church service. They're interrupting a, a, a message. How could they possibly do that? And what did Jesus respond? What did he say? Does he say, hey, Jairus, give me a little bit of time. Just give me a few minutes. Let me finish this message. Then I'll meet your needs. Does Jairus uh, have interference run by the disciples? Jesus is like, hey, disciples, go take care of that guy. He's, he's lost it. He's crazy. Go, get him out of here. Does Jesus respond to Jairus by saying, hey, Jairus, I've got a lot of important things to do. I'm here preaching a message that's going to save souls. I don't have time to take care of one little girl? No. What does Jesus do? He stops everything he's doing. He stops the middle of a message. He stops doing ministry to take care and give time to a broken-hearted father. And this is a theme we see all throughout Scripture, is that Jesus takes time for the broken. Jesus takes time for individuals, for people. We see this with Zacchaeus. As he's up in a tree and Jesus walks by and he speaks to Zacchaeus and he says, hey, I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. Let's go. We see Jesus taking time for the woman at the well, a woman who was a prostitute, a woman who didn't live a life that was honorable to the Lord. And he takes time. He stops with her at the well. He has a conversation with her. He speaks to her deepest need. He loves her. He takes time for her. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus takes time for him. Mary and Martha, when they're in the home, Mary starts having a breakdown and loving on Jesus and pouring out perfume and crying, and Jesus takes time for her, a broken-hearted person. Let me ask you, are you in what appears to be a hopeless situation right now? I don't know what you're going through, but I know that we're all going through something. I know that every one of us is experiencing pain, maybe in a different way. Maybe there's someone who you love right now that's in the hospital. 
And every day you're just praying that the Lord would bring them out, that the Lord would heal them, that the Lord would restore them. Maybe your marriage is falling apart and you just don't know if you're going to make it another week and you look at your kids and you so badly want them to grow up with two parents in the house, but you just don't know how it's going to be possible. Maybe you lost your job this past year due to COVID and you've been looking for something to put food on the table for your family and you just can't find anything that's going to work. And you come here today and you just feel hopeless. You're like, man, I know I need to be here, but I really don't want to be here right now. I really just want to be in bed, curled up in the fetal position, because I can't handle the pain anymore. I can't handle the anguish anymore. I can't handle the depression anymore. Do you desperately need something, but it seems like you're never going to have it? Do you feel like there's no future for you, that it's just too late? If so, then you need to understand that God takes time for the broken. God takes time for the broken. He'll drop everything he's doing. There is nothing on earth that is more important to him than you. And he will take time for you if you come to him. You're not inconveniencing him with your pain. He's not so busy that he doesn't have time for your needs. He's not handing off your problems to the angels because he has more important things to do. You're the most important thing to him. And he will take time for the brokenhearted. And even when there is no hope, there is hope in Jesus. Even when there is no way, he is the way. He will fill the void that you can't fill. He will give you the life that you don't have. He will bring you the joy that you can't find. And life's pain always points to the Lord's promise. Life's pain always points to the Lord's promise. You just have to find it. Let me tell you something. It can be hard sometimes because when you go through pain, Satan wants to put blinders on in your life so that you don't see the Lord's promise. Satan wants to isolate you. Satan wants to make you feel like you're alone. Satan wants to make you feel like you don't want to go to church. They don't understand. Satan wants to put you into a corner where you feel like you can't do it. You can't get through it. And yet the Lord's promise is always there and the pain of life is always pointing to the Lord's promise. And if we follow the Lord's promise, that will bring us to a place of healing where our hearts will be restored, where our pain will be relieved, where our burdens will be let go. And in the presence of the Lord, the perspective on life becomes clear. Life's pain always points to the Lord's promise. Proximity to the presence of the Lord always brings perspective on the pain of life. And we see this all throughout the Bible. When people who are going through immense difficulty and pain get into the presence of Jesus, their countenance changes. We see it, their countenance changes. The things they say change. Their outlook changes because when we get into the presence of God, when we go through pain, instead of running from God, if we run to God, we get perspective on the pain we're going through. We realize, man, this is just temporary. I serve an eternal God who loves me, who cares for me, who has thoughts of good, not evil towards me, to give me a future and a hope. And when we get into the presence of God and see the promises of God, healing begins. And maybe you're here today and you can't feel or sense God's presence. It doesn't mean he's not there. God is there, not because I feel him, not because I see him, but because he promised he would be there. Everywhere Jesus went, he was literally mobbed by people 
pushing and pulling, always wanting something from him, another miracle, another meal, something else. But Jesus always saw through what they wanted to what they needed. He saw through to their deepest need. He saw where they were hurting the most. He saw behind the facade. He saw behind the defense mechanisms. He saw the real cry of their heart. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd going astray, and he had compassion. We see this pattern of compassion all throughout the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus met that woman at the well, how easily could he have lectured her about all the evils of immorality? How easy could he have given a fantastic three-point sermon on why she should turn or burn? But that's not what he does. He saw behind the sin to what drove her, an emptiness for God, and he appealed to that emptiness, and he appealed to her to stop drinking from the waters of this world and drink the water of life that would sustain her permanently, and she would never thirst again, and it spoke to her innermost being. When he saw Zacchaeus, he could have rebuked him for his greed and theft, but Jesus said that he had come to seek and save that which was lost. And I love that word lost because in the Greek, it literally speaks of something that has value but is simply broken. Jesus Christ loves the lost things of this earth. He loves the broken things of this earth. He comes to restore. He comes to save. He comes to heal So whatever brokenness you have, however lost you feel, if you come to Jesus, he will take time for the broken. He was always moved with the needs of people, always moved with what they were going through. When Jesus saw Mary and her friends weeping over the death of her brother Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. That phrase, deeply moved in spirit, carries the idea of physical as well as emotional and spiritual anguish. He was in anguish. He hurt. His heart was broken because they were broken. And again, what an incredible example to us as Christians. This should be how we respond to the world. When we see people in pain, when we see people hurting, our response shouldn't be to tell them how they're sinful and if they change their sinful ways and if they repent and if they turn, then they can be healed and then they can be okay. You know, sometimes we as Christians like to pretend that we're the gospel Gestapo. And like our job is to tell people why they're in the situation they're in because of their sinful desires. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus came to them, and before asking them to repent, before asking them to change, he met their needs. And when he met their needs, it awakened them to the spiritual needs they had that they didn't realize, and then they wanted to come to him. They wanted to be in his presence. When you see a need, when you see someone hurting, meet the need, and then tell them about the great need that they have in their heart. Don't lecture them. Don't tell them why their sin got them there. Don't tell them about all the ways they need to change and then they'll be accepted. Let them know about the love that Jesus has for them. Meet their spiritual and physical needs and watch as their life changes. As Jesus stood at the tomb of the dead Lazarus, he wept. He was always thinking of others. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but was tempted in every way that we are tempted, experienced all the things that we experienced. To sum it up in two words, Jesus cares. Does God really care about you, Christian? 
There's nothing else in the world he cares about more. Jairus had complete faith in Jesus. He believes that Jesus can heal and save his daughter's life. He begs him to immediately go and lay hands on her. He has faith in Jesus. He places himself without reservation in the Lord's hands. And what is the response of Jesus? Well, look at verse 19. It tells us how Jesus responds to Jairus' request in the middle of a message. Jesus arose and followed him. Jesus got up. And followed him. He went with him. And that is exactly what he will do for you if you come to him. And I love this message because so often we're told from a very young age, we're told in church, the more that we go to church, that we are supposed to follow Jesus. And there's good reason because the Bible says, take up your cross and follow me. But we like to talk a lot about following Jesus. And what it does is it puts all the onus and the responsibility on you and what you're doing and how you're walking and how you're going forward. And what happens with that is eventually we get to a point when we fall down when we're hurting, when the bottom drops out and something terrible goes wrong and and we don't follow Jesus as good as we have been and we begin to doubt, we allow those lies of Satan to creep in and tell us, man, you're not doing a good job. You're not a good follower of Jesus. You're never gonna be enough. You're never gonna be good enough. You're never gonna get to heaven. And we begin to doubt ourselves. But I love this message because you need to know that in this life, you aren't just pursuing Jesus. Jesus is pursuing you. You aren't just following Jesus. He is following you. He is running after you. He wants a relationship with you. Like the father and that prodigal son, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how you smell. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. He's gonna run to you. He's gonna strip off his outer garments. He's gonna hug you. He's gonna embrace you. He's gonna welcome you. He is pursuing you, Christian. He's pursuing you. Yes, follow Jesus, but keep in mind that wherever you go, Jesus goes with you. When you fall, when you're hurting, he's there with you. When you're doubting, he's in the midst of that doubt with you. When you can't see a way out, he's there with you. He is with us. In this journey, he is following you just as much as you were following him. And after this first request, Jairus does nothing but simply cling to the side of Jesus. And then... This woman comes on the scene. Let's look at verse 20 to 22. As we see our next point, he brings hope to the hopeless. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I will be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. So on the way to this hurting child, Jairus comes to Jesus, presents his need to Jesus. Jesus gets up and follows him. And on the way to this house to heal this child, an unwelcome interruption occurs. A woman with a need takes hold of Jesus in an unexpected way. Now, 12 years is a significant amount of time in this story for these two hurting people. For this poor woman, we're told that she has had health problems. She's been bleeding for 12 years. For this young girl who was sick and near death, Mark's gospel tells us that she is 12 years old. So 12 years is significant in this story. For this young girl, she's experienced 12 years of relative joy and happiness. 
She grew up in the home of a wealthy, influential person, so she probably wanted for nothing. She always had food on the table. She probably got the best treatment by doctors. She had toys to play with. She grew up with security. But for this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she had experienced 12 years of pain, rejection, and tears. She comes to Jesus penniless, alone, and hopeless. How do I know that? Well, she's penniless because Mark's gospel tells us that she literally spent everything she had on doctors and no one could fix her. So she's penniless. She's alone because of her condition. Because of the condition she experienced, she would be declared by Jewish law as ceremonially unclean. And so she would never be allowed to go to the synagogue and fellowship or experience relationship with other Jews. She was relegated to the outskirts. She would always be an outcast. So she's penniless, she's alone, and she's hopeless. No one can fix her. Nothing can be done. She comes to Jesus at the end of her rope without hope. Jesus is her only hope. Just as Jesus is the only hope for Jairus. Now, how easy would it have been for Jairus to resent this intrusion? Now, I know I would. Maybe you guys are all really good Christians, but if I'm sitting there and my daughter's dying and this woman takes time away from Jesus to go heal my daughter, I'm sitting there thinking, hey, that's not fair, no cuts, right? Who hates cutting? I hate cutting. I mean, I'm, I'm that aggressive driver. I'm that guy at Disneyland who stands like right next to the person in front of me and lets people know, hey, if you're going to cut, it's going to be all kinds of weird touching and moving because I'm not going anywhere. Like, I'm that guy. You are not cutting in front of me. If I'm Jairus, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about my daughter who's on her deathbed, and this woman interrupts Jesus, I'm thinking, hey, you need to wait your turn. That's not fair. I got him first. He can come back on the way and heal you. My daughter's about to die. You've been dealing with this for 12 years. Another day, you'll be fine. And then, when Jesus heals her, I'm thinking, hey, that was my miracle. You just stole my miracle. That was what Jesus was going to do for me, and you just took it. And then even more so, imagine how Jairus felt when he gets the news as Jesus is healing this woman that his daughter has died. Imagine what a shock it might have been to hear someone say, your daughter is dead. In Mark's gospel, we are told that as he's healing this woman, one of Jairus' servants comes and tells Jairus, hey, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Hey, Jairus, it didn't work. It was a valiant effort. You came, you tried to get Jesus to heal your daughter, but she's dead now. Nothing can be done. There is no hope. Leave the teacher alone. Let him go back, back, back to ministry. Let him go back to healing this woman. Let him go back to his message. It's too late. Nothing can be done. You have to imagine at that point how Jairus' heart must have sunk. He was hopeless. This last opportunity for his daughter to be healed was hopeless. His last hope for healing. How easily could he have accused Jairus of neglecting? How easily could he have accused Jesus of neglecting him in his hour of need? Of not doing what he should have done? Of not being there when he should have been there? And then Jesus gives these words of hope to a hurting father. This is exactly what Jesus says to him at this moment. This devastating news comes. He says, be not afraid, only believe. Jairus, don't be afraid, just 
believe. Christian, what are you going through right now? What's happening in your life that's caused you to doubt? What's happening in your life that has you here today feeling hopeless, feeling destitute, feeling like nothing can be done, feeling like God let you down, causing you to ask, does God really care? Jesus is standing at the door of your life and saying, hey, Christian, don't be afraid. Just believe. Just believe. Just have faith. Don't be afraid. I know it's scary out there. I know that life's difficult. I know that there's a lot of things that come that cause us to fear. And guess what? It might be that on this side of eternity, God's not going to bring the healing that you want. He's not going to bring the restoration that you want. That's the reality. We don't like to hear that. But sometimes that's what's happening. Sometimes God might be telling you, just like he told Paul, that he's not going to take that thorn away, that his grace is sufficient for you. But he's still standing there saying, hey, don't be afraid. Because even if the worst thing that could ever happen happens, even if you die, even if they die, I've defeated death, I've conquered death. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Keep on believing. It was these words of Jesus to Jairus that made the difference. Hey, Jairus, you've had a certain amount of faith. You came to me believing that I could heal your daughter. You had that faith. Hold on to that faith. That faith was helped and bolstered when you saw that I healed this woman and you saw that I have the power that you need and you were thinking, man, maybe I can be healed too. Maybe my daughter can be healed too. Keep on believing. Just because she's dead doesn't mean there's not hope. Keep on believing. Don't quit. And this is where a lot of people have trouble with God. This is where a lot of us lose our faith. We grow impatient with the Lord. We say things like, well, doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? Doesn't Jesus promise to give me the desires of my heart? Doesn't he promise to give me a future and a hope? Doesn't he promise that all things work together for good? And we have these promises, and then when God doesn't deliver the way that we think he should or in the time that he should, we begin to doubt those promises of God. We begin to question, well, are those promises real? When something bad happens in our life and we can't reconcile it with Scripture, we begin to doubt God. And sometimes in our life we get this foolproof theory of how the prophetic puzzle is going to come into place for our lives. And we can look at our life and say things to God like, well, God, why wouldn't you want me to make six figures by the time I'm 25? I mean, I'll tithe 10%. Why wouldn't you want me to live in a mansion? Don't you want me to have a finely manicured hedge of protection, Lord? Why wouldn't you want me to marry Chris Hemsworth or Megan Fox? Now, those are ridiculous. I don't think we're saying those things to God. But we do begin to doubt when we say things like, well, well, God, why wouldn't you want me to live out the rest of my days with my spouse or my loved one? Well, God, why, why wouldn't you want me to have good health so that I can continue to serve you? Well, God, why wouldn't you want me to have a job so I can put food on the table for my family? Well, God, why would you want me to go through that tragedy? Why would you want me to go through that pain? Something happens and we begin to get angry at God. Some of us even have our faith hurt. Perhaps that's you today. Maybe you're grappling with doubt right now. Remember, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Don't believe me? Just ask Joseph, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Peter in prison, Martha, despite their interruptions to the plans, they had faith in God. And Christian, God doesn't ask for our understanding of his ways and his timing. All he asks us to do is trust him. All he says to us is, hey, 
Don't be afraid. Just keep believing. Don't be afraid. Just keep trusting. I know you can't see what I'm doing behind the scenes right now, and I've planned it that way. Because if we could see what God was doing behind the scenes, we would never need faith because we just see the ending and say, oh, we're good. But he wants us to trust. He wants us to have faith. So he says, don't be afraid. Just keep believing. From Jairus, he got it. What about you? Christian, God's delays aren't necessarily God's denials. Sometimes he doesn't give us what we ask for because he wants something far greater at a later time. The point is that even though we can't see how the situation is going to end or why it's come upon us, we can know that it flows from the love of God and that it's controlled by him. Even after Jesus didn't do it the way that Jairus thought he should, Jairus still stuck by the side of Jesus. He still stayed with Jesus. He went on believing. Isn't that always true with God? Our interruptions are his opportunities. When Elijah was confronted with the prophets of Baal, it was an interruption to him. But to God, it was an opportunity. When Moses led the people to a dead end at the Red Sea, it was an interruption. But to God, it was an opportunity. When Jesus Christ was unexpectedly captured, beaten, and crucified, you better believe that was an interruption to the disciples. But to God, it was an opportunity. Your interruptions are God's opportunities. When you're unexpectedly interrupted by a phone call with devastating news, it's an opportunity for God. When you're interrupted by losing your job without notice, it's an opportunity for God. When you or someone you love get interrupted with bad news from a doctor, it's an opportunity for God. And when God doesn't do it the way that you think he should, the question for you is, will you keep on believing or will you cave into fear? Christian, you need to come to the realization that your expectation is your limitation. I'm going to say that again. Your expectation is your limitation. Let me tell you, if you trust God fully, if you trust his plans fully, if you keep on believing, then he has far greater things planned for you than anything you could ever dream of or ask for. The reason Jesus did this in their life is because he wanted to do something greater than their expectations. Jairus came wanting a healing, but God wanted a resurrection. He wanted something far greater than what Jairus was asking for. The Israelites wanted freedom. God wanted a promised land. Daniel wanted a diet. God wanted Daniel in the throne room of the king to make decisions. The disciples wanted a lunch break. God wanted a feast. Moses wanted a way around the sea. God wanted a way through the sea. Gideon wanted a victory. God wanted a blowout. Christian, maybe your prayer is too small. Perhaps you come today wanting healing, but God wants resurrection. Maybe you want something good, but he wants something great. And what's the result of Jairus putting his trust in Jesus? Well, let's look at our third and final point. He breathes life into the lifeless. Look at verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And he said to them, make room because this girl isn't dead. She's sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the little girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. He breathes life into the lifeless. Notice in verse 24... Jesus says, make room for the little girl is not dead, she's sleeping. And in Mark's gospel, in verse 39, it says the same thing. Why make all this commotion and weep? The child isn't dead, she's asleep. 
And yet in Mark 5.35, it says, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So let me ask you a question. Is she dead or is she sleeping? Kind of both, actually. It's a trick question. Because all throughout Scripture, death for the believer is compared to sleeping on many occasions. It's compared to sleeping. It's compared to taking a nap. When Stephen is being stoned in Acts 7, it says, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might wake him up. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, speaking to those of us who have died before the Lord returns, he says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Christian, isn't it comforting to know that in God's perspective, even the finality of death is nothing more than a little nap? Even the worst thing that we could ever imagine on this side of eternity is just a little nap for God. You know, I think it's funny because when you're a child, you fight sleep violently. All the parents in here who have had babies know what I'm talking about. Like, it is like a, a, a marathon to try to get your kids to go to sleep. It's like trying to give a cat a bath. I mean, you've got to sit there and roll them up like a tight Chipotle burrito and put one hand here and one hand there and a binky in the mouth. And, and you've got to sit there and shake and make all these weird noises and sing songs. And then when you finally think they're asleep, you put them in the crib and then they pull one of these <laughs> to make sure that you're still there, that you haven't left them. Like, it is, it is a struggle to get a kid to go to sleep. But as you get older, sleep's a luxury, isn't it? As you get older, taking a nap is a welcome intrusion into your day. No one has to force you to take a nap. They don't have to roll you up into a little taquito to go to bed. And I believe that death is the same thing. As a non-believer, you fight against it. You hate it. You don't want to experience it. It's scary because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where you're going to end up. You don't know what awaits you. The prospect of death seems so final. Death. And nothing. But as a believer, we don't have to fear death any more than we'd fear a nap. Death is just like going to sleep. As a matter of fact, as we become a believer, it becomes a luxury because when you wake up, you wake up to eternity. You wake up to heaven. Death is not the end. When we come into a relationship with Jesus, he breathes life into the lifeless. In John eleven twenty five, 25, before Jesus brings Lazarus back to life, he says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There's that word again, believe. Do not fear, just believe. He's telling Jairus, Jairus, just believe, because if you believe, there is life in belief. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will never die. Christian, Jesus is the source of the life that you need. He is the source of the hope that you crave. 
He is the answer to the brokenness that you feel. This is God's all-abiding promise to each of us that no matter what happens to us on this earth, pain, sickness, sadness, and even death, if we accept him, we will be saved and experience life and life abundant. This is the gospel in a nutshell. In verse 25, it says, but when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the little girl arose. Mark's gospel tells us what Jesus said to her. It says that Jesus said, little girl, get up. That's all it took for Jesus to raise someone from the dead. Little girl, get up. In John 11, when they roll away the stone from Lazarus' tomb, Jesus says, Lazarus, get out. Come forth. Little girl, get up. Lazarus, get out of there. Only Jesus can call over to the other side of eternity and be heard. Jesus speaks to and awakes this little girl as a parent would sit on the bedside of their kid in the morning waking him up for school. Hey, it's time to get up. Now, this is all just a preview of coming attractions. Because one day very soon, Jesus himself, who said, I am the resurrection and the life, would himself rise from the dead. And that is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Many other people made great claims and promises. Many religious leaders gave great homilies and said nice words, but only one person rose from the dead, and that's Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ can breathe life into the lifeless. Only Jesus Christ can give you what you need for your hurting soul. I read a story about an atheist professor who was arguing with several students from various religions, and he said to the class, so many people have claimed to be the Messiah. What makes you think that you're right or you're right or you're right? How can you be sure who told the truth? Which one will you believe? From the back of the room, a Christian girl raised her hand and simply replied, I'm going to believe in the one who rose from the dead. (laughs) That's a good answer. We serve a living Savior who has conquered death. For a believer, death isn't the final word. It's just the last transition. If you die as a Christian, life. One closing thought as we wrap this up. Only the true believer can say that the Lord is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him will live and not die. Only a true believer can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Only a true believer can say, you are with me. Not putting their hope in some unrealistic hallmark slogan. For every cloud, there's a silver lining. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. All is well that ends well, I believe. For every drop of rain, a flower grows. Somewhere in the darkest night, a candle glows. Make me vomit. That's all trash. That doesn't help. That doesn't make you feel better. Sometimes life doesn't go well. Sometimes there isn't a happy ending around the corner. Sometimes there isn't a silver lining. But guess what? There doesn't need to be because it's not the journey that matters. It's who's traveling with you and Jesus is following after you. When you come to him for help, he follows after you. Listen, I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and life. I believe that whoever believes in him, though he may die, he shall live. I believe that whoever lives and believes in him shall never die. And that is where happiness is found. That's what this world doesn't have. There's a lot that we don't know. But we know that there's a heaven. We know that God died for our sins. We know that through that death, he made it possible for us to join him. And we know that if we accept him and repent of our sins, then we can go to heaven. And I think that should be our motto as Christians. We know He asked Jairus to trust. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Do you? 
If perhaps you've been doubting God's purpose or timing for your life, remember how Jesus dealt with Jairus and know that God's delays are not always his denials. And when life gets difficult and you're tempted to ask, does God really care? Remember that he takes time for the broken. He brings hope to the hopeless. And ultimately, he breathes life into the lifeless. And right now, we can't see how things are going to work out. Right now, we see through a glass darkly. But then we will see face to face. Then we will know even as we are known. And we might have a lot of questions for God about why he did or didn't do certain things. Why this? Why that? But 15 seconds after you get to heaven, you'll know it all. And until then, just believe. Don't fear. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it casts out all fear, that your love casts out fear. But Lord, our response to that needs to be to turn to you and believe Maybe we're here today and we feel broken. We feel hurt. We're asking that question, Lord, do you care? Maybe this was a last-ditch effort. We said, Lord, I'm going to go to church today, but if you can't do this for me, I'm out. I'm done. And perhaps as you heard this message today, God's spoken to your heart. And you realize that you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You realize that the brokenness, the hurt, the pain that you feel... It's there because you don't have the great healer in your life. If that's you today and you're here and you realize your need for Jesus in this moment, you want to experience the joy. You want to experience the salvation that he can bring as he casts out the fear in your life. You want to know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven and that death isn't the final word for you. Listen, we don't know how long we have here. You might be sitting here knowing, oh, he's about to ask me if I want to accept Jesus, but I'm not going to do that today. I'll do that next week or I'll do that next month. You don't know how long you have. You could die in a car crash today on the way home. And if you were to stand before Jesus this afternoon, what would your response to him be? You leave here today being sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. If you need to accept Jesus into your life right now and know that your sins are forgiven and experience a hope and experience a life and a joy that you didn't have before, would you just raise up your hand and say, I need Jesus in my life right here. See a couple hands to the left, in the back to the right, a couple of you right here. Just raise up your hand like a life preserver. Just reach out for it and say, Lord, I need you. I can't do this on my own anymore. I tried to fix my own life. It hasn't worked. I need you. Anyone else, just raise up your hand. Acknowledge your need for Jesus right now. Well, Lord, I thank you for those who have raised their hands acknowledging their need for you. I pray that you would help them to stand for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, we're already over time, so we're going to do this quick. But I want to give you an opportunity to put feet to your faith. Look, it's one thing to raise up your hand in a dark room when no one's looking, but it's another thing to be seen, to walk with Jesus. It does something for your faith. And you're in a room full of people that love him. If you can't stand for Jesus in a room full of people that love him, how are you going to do it when you're walking in a world that hates him? So if you raised your hand up right now, we're going to stand. We're going to sing this song together. It's a beautiful song that Chris wrote that I think really, really speaks to the heart of what this message was. And if you need Jesus right now, you raise your hand. If you come down here to the front, and I'm going to say a prayer with you to accept him into your life. You come now. Don't wait. Right now, you come. Come on, church. Let's give them a round of applause. Let's let them know they are loved. Come on. It takes courage to stand for Jesus, but it took even more courage for Jesus to die on the cross for you. So don't wait. Don't be afraid. You come. You cast out fear. You get right with Jesus. Come on. Have you forgotten the one who first called you by name? 
And have you let life's disappointments make you think he's changed? Won't you come and see again? Let your heart believe again. Yes, he does. Still heal the broken. Run to the hurt and pour out his love. Yes, he does. Restore the hope of all those who wait for a miracle. Same decision. Perhaps you at one point had a relationship with God, but you've walked away from Him. You no longer are walking with Him. You've left your first love and you realize you need to rededicate your life to Him. If that's you right now, we're going to wrap up. We're not going to sing anymore, but I want to give you that opportunity. If you're still sitting here, you realize you need to do this. You've seen these people. What's holding you back? Is it the person next to you, the person in front of you? You're sitting there thinking, well, they think I'm a Christian. I don't want to let them down. Look, they didn't die for your sins, Jesus died for your sins. They can't forgive you of your sins. Only Jesus can forgive you of your sins. And guess what? If they're a real believer, when they see you go forward, they're going to be rejoicing in their heart for the decision that you're making. And if they're not a believer, maybe that will give them the courage they need to come forward and accept Jesus Christ. Anyone else, before we pray, you want to settle this here and now. Your heart wants to be right before God. You want to experience the joy and the forgiveness. Anyone else before we pray? Here's your moment. Well, Lord, I thank you for those uh, who have come forward. I'm going to say a prayer right now, and I'm going to ask those of you who have come forward to say this prayer after me. Say it out loud and say it from your heart. Say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done many things that have hurt you. But, Lord, I believe that you died for my sins, and I believe that you rose from the dead. Come into my life. Forgive me. I turn from my old life, and I turn to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, don't go anywhere. Hold on for just a second. To my right is Antonio. We want to give you guys a Bible. We want to pray with you. We want to help you walk with God. You took a big step today. It took courage. But walking with God is about daily taking a step towards him. And we want to walk on that journey with you and help you begin to live for Christ. So follow Antonio. Let's give them a round of applause. God bless you guys. Hey, this week, remember, don't be afraid. Just believe. God bless you guys. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church. Thank you.